entrepreneurship, you know, everybody says they want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. What does entrepreneur mean? It means risk taker. It doesn't mean taking a risk with other people's money. It means taking a risk with your own money. That's a fundamental precept that I think is really, really important. Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Success is in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection, and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. So before we get into this episode, Martin dialed in from Italy, which meant the internet connection where he was based was a little bit patchy. He dialed in through Zoom, would normally get them to dial in through a different platform. So the audio does come in and out on occasion. Forgive me in advance, but I hope you enjoy the episode. Today's Big Cheese is serial entrepreneur, investor, industry god and inspiration of mine, Sir Martin Sorrell. With an illustrious career to date, Sir Martin, who was critical to Saatchi and Saatchi's success, famed for refining the earnout, later went on to purchase WPP, or Wire and Plastic Products PLC, which was formerly a shopping basket manufacturer business. He repositioned this business, becoming one of the largest advertising agencies in the world, purchasing some 18 businesses over three years, which included both J. Walter Thompson in 1986 for half a billion dollars, and Ogilvy in 1989 for $825 million. After Declining a buyout from Warren Buffett for 20% over the market value, which might have changed Sir Martin's career path somewhat, in 2018 he left WPP to found his latest venture, S4 Capital, named after the four generations of Sorrels. S4 Capital, which recently acquired MediaMonks, has since its founding two years ago reached a market cap north of $3 billion, becoming a unicorn in its first year. Block your diaries out and get a pen and paper ready, as this will be fascinating. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Martin Sorrell. Pleasure, Oliver. Or I say a pleasure before we start, whether I say it after the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's his hoping. Here's to hoping. Martin, you, you grew up in, in North London. In what North West. I grew, I, grew up, I grew up in the ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> Your parents, though, um, you know, they, they left school when they were 13. Your brother passed away before you were born. Ultimately, you were an only child. How did that influence your upbringing? I was a spoiled child, so my mother doted on me. My grandfather, my Zader, as we call them, and my Bubba on my father's side, my Zeda and my Bubba on my uh, mother's side. They came from uh, Romania and Poland. My um, grandparents on my father's side, as best as we can determine, came from the Ukraine in, uh, in 1899. At the time of the pogroms, I think they, right. we think they came from Kiev. It might have been Lvov. We're not 100% sure. And arrived here with nothing in the east end of London, in Stepney, Mile End. My mother and father went to Myland Central and uh, met there, and they left there at the age of 13. So um, 
yeah, that was the the, the background. My, my grandmother was the Bella Booster, as we call her, the one that the lion of the family had. Uh, what was it? Six kids. Blimey. Most of them then went off to uh, America to seek their fortune in America unsuccessfully. My father was the youngest and stayed here. And um, after I think about two or three years or four years, he grew a moustache to look older. And he represented, um, I think, rather questionable businessmen in the east of London who had done naughty things. He, he represented them in court. He was an unqualified lawyer. And then he went into the retail trade. He went right. into retail, radio and electrical, and worked his way to the top of an organization. It was a division of a industrial holding company called Firth Cleveland, run by a sort of a famous man called Charles Hayward, Sir Charles right. Hayward who owned Wolverhampton Wanderers. He was a metal bender during the, the war um, nice. and made all sorts of, I, I, I think probably made armaments actually. In, uh, really? In, in, Firth, Firth Cleveland was one of the first listed holding companies, first conglomerates, and it had a retail operation called J&M Stone. So he ran a, a chain, I'm very proud of him. He, ra- he, he ran a chain of 750 stores dotted around the UK and uh, of its time probably was the Dixon's yeah. It was the precursor to Dixon's. And it, I mean, interestingly, Martin, because you, you went to Haberdasher's Boys' School, which incidentally is actually a client of us currently, and you then went on to study at, at University of Cambridge. You did economics, um, economics there. Did you kind of have a plan as to what you wanted to do when you were going through education, or was it very much because I know your father said, you know, don't start a business or don't do something on your own until you know you're roughly forty. Do you, do you have a plan to kind of winkle your way into to learning from other people? I mean, actually, it was it was the chairman of South Cleveland. Uh, Charles Hayward, we were at his, at his house, his very posh country house in Sussex called Warning Lid. And I said, please, sir, I want to go into business. And he said, well, if you want to go into business, my boy, you should go to the Harvard Business School. And that sort of resonated with me. I went, as you say, I was at Haberdashers mm-hmm. and uh, with them went on to Christ Cambridge. And I went with Simon Sharma, who's now the, the most famous historian in the world. He, uh, Simon and, and I went to the Democratic Convention in 19... 1964 in Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. At the time I was there, I, I sort of written to the business school saying I wanted to to go to, to the business school after I graduated. Uh, but in 64, I said, you know, I wanted to go. And I went up, I went up to Boston, went around the campus, was interviewed by the admissions uh, department. Uh, the rest is history, actually. And they got I was offered a place after I I, I graduated from from Cambridge, and I went straight to HBS, which, which was at a time in the draft, the Vietnam draft, and people, in or, the Americans, in order to avoid the draft, went straight to postgraduate. So we were what, what Dean Athos, the admissions tutor at, uh, at Harvard, described the most naive class at the Harvard Business School. We were certainly the youngest. I think the average age probably was around 24 going in, <laughs> 20, and 26 going out, and it would now be about 26, 27 going, going in, and 28, yes. 29 going out. So. Uh, but but you know I I, I you know I'm a, I mean hev- not heavily involved but I'm involved with business education I think getting a balance mm-hmm. of students who come straight from school straight from university and have experiences is a better route and when you think about you know HBS was sort of a deal between Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and and Harvard and and the deal was. You know, McKinsey and Goldman will take somebody for two years. So you graduate from university, you're 21, 22. You go and get work experience for, for two years, for 23, 24. And then you go back to school and get an MBA. Mm-hmm. You're 24, you come out 26. 
And then I'm a great believer in you should do the PMD or the equivalent program for management development when you're around mid-30s, you know, another three months, and then maybe the AMP advanced management program when you're in your late 40s or 50s. I mean, the, the, the problem with management education is it tends to be concertinaed into a short period of time when it really should be spread out over a lifetime. I think that's the best way of doing it. Because so much changes, surely. I mean, just going back to the apprenticeship scheme that, that, that you, you referenced, I mean, currently the pandemic's spewed up a lot of things. For one is Kickstart, right? And there's a huge amount of businesses taking on these Kickstarters. And, and you know, that is a hugely beneficial thing to these individuals. But do you not think learning on the job is almost just as good as, as having some sort of MBA or management training course? No, I, no I'm, I'm all for a balance between the two. I, I, I disagree. I mean, you know, the apprenticeship system, for example, in Germany, extremely effective. We, we have in S4 our own apprenticeship. I just did a session with our first interns who are Afro-Americans. So we've, it was since the murder of George Floyd, we've been uh, investing in, in a program around um, young interns from high schools and from the historically black universities. I saw them at a session with the first three last week, actually, on Friday. You have a balance between that sort of internship and education. I mean, I think those three that I saw are immensely talented. Uh, two men, one woman uh, are immensely talented. They, they've just finished their three, four year programs at Howard University or wherever, mm -hmm. one of the, the famous historically black universities. And, you know, I think maybe at the end of the four year program, they can continue to work with us or, you know, I'd be very happy to try and support some of them if if possible um, at business schools. To the point of, of, of the sort of DNI aspects and policies that you guys have been pushing so hard since George Floyd's death, how important is it for, for brands and for businesses alike to, to really be driving this home? Well, I think they'll have no choice. I, I think one of the interesting things, and obviously, you know, we're, we're doing training programs, internships, changing our hiring practices. We've committed to reflect the communities in which we operated. So, for example, in America, we're probably, our, our black population, we're very good on it. We're 40% people of color. So we do extremely well against the tech companies and against our competition. However, it's not good enough because we've committed to reflecting on the communities in which we work and the, the black population. We might do very well with Asian Americans or with Hispanics, but with black population, the average is 13% in America. And we're only about 5%. Uh, we work in New York. It's 25%. We should be 25%. We might be okay in California, but we're not okay in New York. So we have to shift that. So we're doing through our internship program, through changing our hiring practices, through education, everything else. And on gender, we're not 50-50, but at senior levels, we aren't. And we're trying to, 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 rep, to get to equality in the senior levels through the senior, the S4 senior or the women's senior leadership program mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley. But having said that, I don't think companies will have a choice because one of the interesting things is procurement now is starting to lay yeah. down. You know, For example, we had a pitch, we won the tech platforms recently, uh -huh. and 40% 40, 40 of the grade was on the diversity of the team. We won that assignment, and that was because we had a highly diverse team. But it means that you won't even get to first base, let alone hit a home run unless you have diverse teams. So I think procurement is probably, you know, I remember listening to a, a, a call that Ken Fraser, the uh, CEO of Merck, 
uh, made to a, a group where we were talking about the levers that can be pulled after George Floyd's murder, uh, the levers that could be pulled to 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 move more quickly, and and he 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 didn't get a lot of time to develop this thing here around procurement, but I think it is it is the key the key thing. Our sponsors, Coronation Wealth Management, provide a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. Here's what an entrepreneur and the founder of a health and fitness app says about working with Coronation Wealth. The team at Coronation have had no end in helping me formulate my business, understand the risks and things to think about. They're now looking after my family and their financial objectives. Coronation Wealth Management LLP is an appointed representative of and represents only St. James's Place Wealth Management PLC, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. I suppose in terms of when you left McCormack, which was obviously the agency that you went to or you worked at the sports agency before you went to Saatchi and Saatchi in 75, but that was when things really started to kind of gear up to a certain extent for you because you, over time, became group finance director in 77. And essentially what you were famed for doing was refining the earnout process. Now, what did you kind of know that others didn't, I suppose, within the Saatchi, Saatchi business and just generally in the industry? I mean, it's, a no it's a nonsense to say that I invented it. I think some people have suggested I invented the earnout. Earnouts were the best way historically. I don't think they're the best way now, but the best way historically of, of quotes unquote buying people businesses. We at S4 now are merging with businesses because we think, and this is a really important point. I fundamentally believe that one of the tenets of um, modern capitalism sounds very pretentious, doesn't it? should be the unification of ownership and control. I think one of the biggest issues for listed companies, the, the problem is that you have a separation of ownership and control. And often, often the, the objectives of managers and the objectives of share owners or shareholders are different. And uniting the two, I think, is critically important. You know, if I was a fund manager, I would only invest, I think only invest where management had a very significant interest in the business, not through options, because as Warren Buffett said many, many years ago, you wouldn't give an institution a call on your stock for 10 years at zero cost. So why do you do it with management? I mean, options are a heads I win, tells you lose, mm -hmm. uh, flip of the coin for management. I mean, if you, know, if you don't make it, you don't suffer anything. If you do make it, you benefit. And I think that's, so putting your money, and this is another thing, putting your money where your mouth is, doing it very crudely, is critically important. Going out and mortgaging the house and mortgaging everything else yes. and having skin in the game, as the Americans called it, I think is critically important. And not through, not through some entitlement mechanism like restricted stock. Yes. Even restrict, you know, restricted stock probably is worse than market price options. Yeah. Zero price op zero price options are probably pretty effective from a motivation point of view, but again, you don't lose anything. No. And I and I think I think entrepreneurship, you know, everybody says they want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. What does entrepreneur mean? It means risk taker. It doesn't mean taking a risk with other people's money. It means taking a risk with your own money. Mm -hmm. And that that's a fundamental precept that I think is really, really important. 
when you have transitioned into S4 Capital, when you started that in April uh, 2018, you pumped $54 million, I believe, of your own cash into it. And oh, then... Pounds, pounds, pounds. Sorry, pounds, 54 million pounds. Um, and, then, and then a further 15 million you raised privately, I believe. Now, is that going back to that case in point as to, you know, you have a significant amount of skin in the game, believe in me. Why did you actually then leverage and raise another 15 million quid? What was the need well, for that? I, I went, I, because, uh, you know, I didn't have the resources to do significant deals. So the, the deal was, actually, I started off, I put more money in on the first raise, but I put in 40 million quid at the beginning. And then I, I went to 10 institutions uh, and I said, put in a million each and I'll have 80% of the vehicle that was S4 Capital. You have 20. Uh, and on the understanding, not the legal, actually, actually interesting, it wasn't the legal commitment, mm -hmm. but on the understanding, when I do the first deal, when we do the first merger, as we, we now call it, where people are swapping their companies, if you like, for half shares and half cash, when we do the first deal, uh, you know, pr promise, verbally promise you'll, you'll underwrite. So the first deal was Media Monks, yes. quite famous because great company and WPV tried to stop it and it rather clumsily, uh, you know, I actually have a copy of the the bid actually they they bid one half billion um euros for really? with, with an earn out from media months we we secured the company for 300 million although to be fair you know with the rise in the value of s4 equity has become worth i think it's well over a billion uh, in terms in conceptually in terms of value so they weren't really? that dumb but but <laughs> um, but but they were they were a little bit elephant time the way they tried to do it a bit clumsy bit clumpy yeah. clumpy uh, in any event i mean that that was the deal the deal was i'll uh, give up 20 percent of the company uh for you to underwrite it and the first deal was 300 million euros it was it still is the biggest deal that we've done so far uh, it was roughly it wasn't quite half shares half cash because uh victor knapp and wes Tahab at media monks uh had brought in a private equity company bensis Okay. Uh, which, which was a private equity company in Holland, which had 52%. And Victor and Wes and the management had 48%. So we took Benkis out. They, 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 they kept the bid in and done very well. But we took them out uh, for cash. Mm -hmm. And then we, we management, let's say the other half, was 50-50. Was so uh, we, we started to deploy the new way of doing it, not through earnouts, not through earnouts, but through... 50 50 mixture with uh with uh lockups on the stock uh for a minimum of two years right. and it's worked very well i mean every transaction mighty hive quickly followed in december of 18 on the same basis do you not think that it's easier to wriggle out of an earnout for the person that's doing the m a though to a certain extent because is there not a lot of stories around how someone values it at x they actually only get y but because they haven't hit the targets they actually don't get any of it is that not a risk when doing an earnout? Um, well, it depends on you know um, what you negotiate. No, I, uh, no, I, don't, I haven't come across that. I mean, people. I mean, the problem problem is you know people change over time, and yeah. if, uh, over a five year period, and if you have let's say four or five principals in the form within a firm, you know they'll get married, they'll get divorced, they, their, their parents may die, they, you know, goodness knows what may happen. They may their objectives may change. So people change over a period of time. So that's mm -hmm. one sort of potential risk. On the assumption that, that your lawyers and your, your accountants have done a decent job in negotiating the agreement, I don't think there's a risk 
you know, of much um, of a problem. You know, sometimes you have calculation de debates, you know, accounting principles, you know, are not necessarily 100% explicit and is subject to interpretation. And where there's interpretation, there's room for sort of judgment. And what strikes me, Martin, and, and we kind of, you know, skipped ahead a little bit, but the speed that you use personally act in terms of when you when you left WPP to when you actually started S4 Capital. Well, I mean, actually... It was very simple. I, very simple. I'm 70, I was 73 years old there, so I didn't have much time. <laughs> but, but, but even when you scale it back to my, to my uh, ripe old age of, of 28, acting so quickly over three years and acquiring 18 different businesses within WPP when you, when you, when you first bought that to then, you know... So then scaling S4 Capital as you have to a two, three billion revenue business within a handful of years. I mean, it's a breakneck speed. How do you actually do it? And how do you find the cash to do well, that? You, well, you, you have a good team of people. I mean, we've got a very, we have, uh, you know, currently eight people. We're going to add to the leadership team shortly, but we have eight very good people. We we meet every day. I think we're going to be due to meet later today, mm -hmm. despite the fact that, you know, we're, we're spread around the world. We have we have a couple of very good people in Singapore. We have a couple, three people in Amsterdam, myself in London, and then a couple of people in the States, one in Denver and one in Scottsdale. And we're, you know, we're hard at it all the time and we're committed to doing it. But um, no, I, I mean, it's a little bit different, I think. When I left, when I left Sarches and started um, Warren Plastic Products, uh, or got into Warren Plastic Products, probably, yeah, I wasn't sort of conscious of the, of the speed I mean, I was conscious that I wanted to get on with it but I wasn't as sort of as conscious of it as I think and I, you know I say jokingly about well half jokingly about being 73 but it does you know uh, yeah, there's another element to it was that you know I chose to go I thought that the the chairman of WPP bungled well, it, well, indeed. I mean, Mark Reed, for instance, who is you? You say is the wrong chap for WPP to, to drive. Well, it no, it's not, it's not the wrong chap. He's he, he's the wrong half a chap. <laughs> um, okay. You know, he, he is is Andrew Scott, who sort of disappeared into the background for unknown reasons. I don't right. know because I think I think uh, Andrew is immensely talented. I mean, um, and Andrew has the abilities that Mark doesn't. Yes, and um, the two together might be a much more potent contribution, but. Really, WPP hasn't changed. I mean, WPP is in the Saragasso Sea. I mean, it's it's sort of just stationary. The other thing, actually, is it's an interesting thing from a motivation point of view. What we used to say at WPP was, you know, that the, the trade, the sort of implicit yes. trade was, you retain your independence through the earnout structure. Yes. You continue to run your business, and we'll do the back office. That was the the trade. The trade now in an S4 context is a trade between, you know, obviously because we're a unitary brand, so mm -hmm. people are going to have to buy into the unitary brand. So trade, the trade is your brand for access to talent, mm -hmm. access to capital. You, you, you may not be controlling your own brand sort of independently, but now you're going to have access to what I just said. And you're going to be able to carve out space yes. within an enlarged organization for the things that you want to do. So, for example, if you're really interested in social media, mm -hmm. as one of, one of our entrepreneurs is, he builds our social media presence around the world. If you're really interested in fashion or luxury or autos or whatever category you tech mm -hmm. or tech platforms, you have the ability and space to do it. So it's quite an attractive destination. 
And structurally, then, I mean, obviously, you're the, I suppose, the senior monk, as you call yourself or refer to yourself uh, now. But... Elder, I think I'm going to change it to elder monk. <laughs> Which, however, you refer refer to yourself in terms of the sort of structure and how you have learned to structure a business. How how did you kind of you know come to the forefront of that? Because so many entrepreneurs, so many business leaders muddle through hope for the best and make so many mistakes. Now, I appreciate you went into sort of running your own business at forty odd, but is that from simple experience or is that just through muddling through? Well, I think, you know, you pick up things all the time. Um, you know, look, we have it. We have it. Uh, I think the best, you know, I've been at this for about 50 years in the industry at Sarches, at WPP and S4. I can't think of a better group. Maybe the, the group, the Tim Bell, the Morris Charles, Tim Bell, Bill Muirhead, Jeremy Sinclair group uh, at Sarches in, in London when I started there in, what was it, 78? 79 80 that was fantastic you know every every week headlining campaign but the team that we have now is and it's a team of entrepreneurs who are really driven they're driven by that um there's a little bit i'm going to say a little bit of a chip on the shoulder uh, a little bit of a we have a point to prove you know media monks highly respected highly admired but regarded by some as just being a rinky dink production company uh mighty hive Highly respected, highly admired, but yeah. regarded by some as being, you know, sort of a, a sort of transparent uh, media consultancy and not one of the big boys. But yeah. you know, size is something we can do something about. Yes, no, I, I I concur with that entirely, and yeah, no, I, I mean, in terms of managing people, thousands and thousands of individual people that you that you do manage, I mean, your senior leadership team were what handpicked? Are they based on highly experienced individuals that you've worked with for many many years, yeah, or how does that they work? They are they are people that are highly motivated yeah. to achieve to achieve the common purpose. So we want to create the new advertising and marketing services model, and we want to disrupt the old. So, so you know, it is a, there's something Teslan there, and mm-hmm. be very grand. There's something Amazonian there. Yes. Uh, in in a much smaller industry, it's about a two trillion dollar industry, so it's a big addressable market. But there is something messianic there. So, so, so Martin, are you, are you saying that you are a hybrid of Bezos and Musk? Is that is that what you get? You get a Sir Martin Sorrell at no, the back? No, 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 no way. You're, you're, now you're being extremely naughty. No, no, no way. No, no. Uh, you know, I probably have um, the the one one of their fingers of talent. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the sort of sort of the topmost joint of one of their fingers. Well, we very much admire medium monks, and, and actually, we'd class them as a as a compressor. We do, as you know, data led creative with with production expertise. So it's a similar industry, and I totally get why everything's going digital, why everything's going data. And I mean, looking ahead, and I, I totally appreciate um, that you probably said this to many, many people. But looking ahead over 12, 18, 36 months, that kind of duration, where do you kind of see the world going? Because the pandemic, as you and I both said over email together, hasn't necessarily stemmed anything truly, in, you know, innovative in our industry. It's it's merely just brought it forwards. It's accelerated at a hyper speed. I just brought it forward. So, you know, what what comes out of it? I mean, twenty one is a very strong year because GDP growth is at five to six percent. Why? Because of the monetary and fiscal stimulus. And twenty two looks as though it will be very similar, maybe four to five percent. I was on a call yesterday yesterday evening, uh, which sort of suggested, you know, uh, it, well, there, there was the, the fiscal impulse will be less in 22 than 21 because it will start to, you know, we'll start to get into taper territory 
But the simple fact is that worldwide GDP growth in relatively, with relatively little inflation, although inflation is building, for two years will be at five to six and four to five. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. So anybody listening to this, now is the time to make hay while the, the sun shines. I mean, five to six GDP growth one year, four to five the next. We ain't seen this for many, many years. And you go back, you have to remember, you go back to the 70s or the 80s, you've got those sort of numbers, but with inflation at way higher than we're looking at now. So real growth, uh, real growth is huge. So that's one thing. So the, the tailwind from GDP growth and the fiscal stimulus is huge. My worry is what happens in 23. You know, what we've learned from, from the pandemic is, you know, the underlying economic conditions are very strong. And digital transformation has been, you know, has been significantly pushed up the agenda. It is probably number one or close to number one on every CEO's agenda. And, and that's obviously your, your forecast, your trajectory for the next couple of years. But I suppose looking back, is there anything that you've gone, bugger, I've missed that. I should have actually been, you know, had my finger on the pulse more. No, I think I think the thing that uh, I always am irritated about is, is you know, we, we were, you know, if you think about the sort of media buying operation that we had at, uh, that we built at uh, WPP, which got up to at the height about 70, 75 billion billings. You know, we clearly saw the growth of Google and Facebook and Amazon, and and I think we didn't capitalize on it sufficiently. So I think that you know that was obviously you know what happened to WPP. I think that wasn't, as I said, handled handled very well. I think that, but you know, in a funny way, that that has been probably the best thing that could have happened. It, you know, the, the, the ad holding companies are sort of in glue, aren't they? They sort of, every time they try and move, their arms are, are sort of weighed down. What does success, Martin, look like to you then? What do you, what do you want to be when you're, when, when you're older? <laughs> well, they, we don't have any goals. You know, people, uh, you know, I'd like to be in the FTSE 100. We're 124 or so in the FTSE right. After after three years, you know, we we achieved unicorn status in one year, which I think is unprecedented. Yes. It wasn't that we set out to do that, or even that we set out to be FTSE one hundred or whatever. No, I I think I think the measure of success is that we got significant conversional scale in twenty with BMW, and we're getting more whoppers. We define a whopper as twenty million dollars right. of gross revenues uh, on an annual basis, and we're you know getting getting more and more we've identified 20 whoppers our objective is 20 squared which is 20 times 20 yeah, yeah. and we have five we've identified probably another 10 that we think are potential ones and you'll see shortly i think that we're making more more progress in adding more whoppers so conversion at scale is critically important if, if, i mean all the ceos the leaders the people the entrepreneurs that are, that are listening to this if you were in their shoes martin what would you want to hear if there are any if there yes, we, i hope we haven't bored them too much <laughs> um no no but in terms of it what would you want to listen to if you were for instance in their shoes what would you want to hear as a piece of advice to take them sort of through the next couple of years no look i i, I think People who want advice, and far be it for me to offer any advice. I make tons of mistakes all the time, but you know, I think having a clear strategy, yeah. uh, you know, having a, if you want to call it a vision, a vision, a, a clear strategy of how you're going to implement that vision, mm-hmm. um, and then putting in place the structure to do it. I mean, you you asked a few minutes ago, and I didn't really respond to you. you know, how do you raise all that money? Well, you 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 raise it by doing 
but having a coherent strategy which people believe in and then executing behind that you know that and, and the irony is that when you start there are some who believe in you and there are some who don't um if you're reasonably successful more believe <laughs> and then those that come in and say why didn't i believe at the beginning yeah. you know it's difficult and i've done the same thing you know i've I, you know, i've passed up the beatles i'm sure many 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 times and what's your, what's your biggest mistake then in, in, in that instance what is your biggest mistake my biggest mistake was the ogilvy funding that was right. in in 89 that was the that's the the, the the biggest one that i will admit to i remember that there was a very famous fund manager well not famous externally but well known well-respected fund manager at the Pru, who, when we were doing the convertible preferred, as we were walking out of the room, we we did the pitch to him, said to me, Martin, anything you can do with a convertible preferred, you should be doing with equity. And um, and he was right, because three, four years later, when we did the refinancing through JP Morgan, uh-huh. um, we ended up, you know, with the debt for equity swap, which when he, if you did the maths, you know, if we'd done a pure equity, we would have suffered more initial dilution, but we would have right. got, got into exactly the same the same spot. But you know, every cloud has a silver lining. You know, Warren Buffett bought the bought the um, I think he bought the convertible actually at a low point, and that converted into ordinary and made a lot of money. And a lovely letter from him sitting on my shelf saying, uh, you know, I sold out too early. I I, I bought in at was forty five, sold out at one hundred and twenty, and then the last line is. Priceless line said, "Pass me the dunces cap." <laughs> but didn't Mr. Buffett famously say to you that he was going to offer you twenty percent above market value to buy WPP back in the day? Why did you say no to that? Well, I wanted to do it. It was just the, the bank said, "You know, the average premium for a, a listed company is thirty percent." He offered nine twenty-five. Yeah, and, and if you've gone to a thousand, the, the rest would be history. When are you going to pack it all in and retire? Because you can't keep going like this forever, can you? When I die. <laughs> my son my son said I will be found in seat 1A seat 1A on that note Sir Martin I really appreciate your time thank you ever so much and, uh, and best of luck thanks very much thanks for listening to this episode for more information check out the description where you can find exclusive video snippets on my YouTube channel as well as contact details and links if you've enjoyed this episode please show your support as always by subscribing if you or someone you know should be on the show please email me via oliver at pinpoint-media.co.uk and I promise I'll get back to you. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Take care. Success in the Mind is proud to be sponsored by Coronation Wealth Management, a professional service providing tailored financial advice to business owners, entrepreneurs, managers, and clients looking to grow and protect their wealth or reach their financial goals. The team at Coronation Wealth provides services including retirement, investment, protection, and business planning. To find out more, go to coronationwealth.co.uk. This podcast is supported by our media partner, Blocks and PR, who represent some of the most powerful brands within the luxury, lifestyle, and fashion sector. Go and check them out at blocksandpr.com. <laughs>